Welcome to episode one of the Swamp Flex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. This is the podcast version of the movie review site Swamp Flex. We're coming to you from New Orleans, Louisiana. What are we talking about today, James? Uh, we're going to be talking about our top five movies of 2015. And then after that, uh, we're going to talk about the movie Felt, which I made James watch for the first time. Ugh. Oh, man. <laughs> it's going to be a really fun conversation about a not-so-fun movie. Uh, and all that's coming up right, right now. now. <laughs> it's time for our top movies of 2015. Uh, we've done a definitive list of the website. Uh, that's basically between me and Aaron, Brittany, and Mark. But I didn't hear anything from James about what he liked in 2015. Uh, Nobody cares about my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll give James a chance to speak and basically talk about movies we liked from this year. Yeah. A uh, very quick, concise five movies when, like, there's probably, like, 50 movies we could each talk about that we loved. Yeah. Uh, so, let's start with James. What did you like from 2015? Well, I will say, first of all, it was pretty hard to narrow it down to five. Um, so, I guess I'll start. Number five, uh, Phoenix, which uh, I was completely blown away by the ending to this movie, to be honest, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone that hasn't seen it, but it's kind of a it's kind of a slow burn film about a woman that survives uh, the Holocaust and she comes back and her face is disfigured and she ends up reconnecting with her ex husband who may or may not have sold her out to the Nazis and they kind of rekindle their relationship but in a very bizarre way, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it it was kind of like a very subtle movie, and then, again, the last scene just left me floored. Well, I watched this movie first thing this morning in a coffee shop, uh, <laughs> thanks to your weird. recommendation. Um, I've been avoiding it, even though it made a lot of top-of-the-year uh, right. lists that I've read. No, that's how I had heard about it, too. It was just like, oh, it's on a bunch of top ten lists. I should yeah. check it out. And I was like, oh, wow. It's yes. a, it's not a light uh, entertainment. It is something that's got a lot of gravity to it. Uh, I think the main thing about it, I would say, is that it's two specific people after the war who are trying to like recapture um, something that doesn't exist anymore, and they're both yeah. trying to like. It's a couple who don't recognize each other in different ways. Like he physically doesn't recognize his wife, right? And she sort of emotionally doesn't recognize her husband. Like, he's acting differently and, than the way she remembers him. And that's what's so... What's so... There's so many great scenes in the movie where, like, she's playing the role of his wife, but he keeps, like, correcting her, like, no, this is how my wife would behave. Like, you're not doing it. And then she says, after Auschwitz, she would not act that way. Right, exactly. And that's kind of what the whole film is about. It was like you can't expect someone to have gone through something like that and to come back the same person. And so these scenes where he's like coaching her th through like how to be herself are like, I don't know, it really struck me. It's like it's, a very strange, uh, powerful dynamic. It's an uncomfortable slow burner. It is uncomfortable for, yeah, large portions when they actually get together as a couple again, you're like, wait, I don't know how to feel But as about you said, this. like that last scene really does sort of nail everything home in like a really satisfying way. Yeah. So like, I'm glad I put myself through it, but it was definitely like not a fun watch. Like, no. <laughs> and I I don't know. I'm more 
I more enjoy those kind of movies. Yeah, I'd, where I feel I'd be like more I likely to, to watch like a Magic Mike than yeah, like a Phoenix. Than something where I have to suffer a little bit yeah. to get through it. But you know, there you do kind of suffer through the movie, but then at the end, it all comes to light, and you're like, oh wow, okay. Like this yeah, that all last makes second gut punched really doesn't make the film feel more special in retrospect. Yeah, and I. So that's why I cracked my top five. It did feel like a very special. At least the ending, I think, is pretty remarkable. So, anyway, so that's my number five. Uh, coming in at number four, it's one of my favorite directors out right now. This guy, Roy Anderson, he really hasn't made very many films. He did Songs from the Second Floor, which I really loved. But uh, his film that came out in 2015 it's a long-winded title. <laughs> a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on its existence. Um, Both of those are anthology movies? It's anthology in the sense that, like, yeah, there's all these kind of little vignettes, stories. And what kind of binds the two together is that all, everything kind of happens in the background with this movie. So there will be something really tragic happening, like a man has a heart attack in the middle of like, you know, a diner. And then the, uh, you know, the waitress will ask, oh, well, does anyone want his beer and his steak? I mean, he's not going to eat it. And it's just people kind of decide, you know, oh, I'll, I'll have his beer. I'll have his steak. <laughs> and, but it's all set to this very like kind of morose, like everyone's pale and just like everything feels very bizarre, but it's. Would you say it's like an abstract comedy, like an absurdist comedy? It is definitely the style he works in is absurdist comedy. Okay. Like more than anything else, it's just absurd. You have these situations of life and death, and then there's like very like kind of the minutia. Can I ask you to just to explain an image for me? I haven't seen either of these films, but yeah. in uh, Pigeon on a Branch. Uh, there's a scene where someone kind of turns this gigantic music box and it sounds like people are moaning on fire inside of it. <laughs> yeah. What is happening there? I Okay, so like Roy Anderson, this director, he does, this is like his thing. It's just these bizarre, like kind of no real context, just like weird, abstract, surreal images that like, even if the whole film doesn't work for you, like you will definitely like that scene, for instance, like you'll come away from like, well, that was bizarre and right. kind of funny, you know, as far as like context, you would just have to, to see the movie. There is an overarching story. That, is that a music box that I'm looking at where they're like turning the crank or is that something else? No, it's a, a music box, <laughs> quote, quote unquote. But like, I, you do have to have a certain sense of humor to like get his films, but like, I don't know if you're into surrealism and so like Edward Albee or like uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, like that kind of like classical absurdism or yeah, no that that's a good, I don't know that's a good comparison. It's um, it's sublimely kind of funny. Like okay. you're not gonna like have these laugh out loud sort of moments, but there's these like just very bizarre images that you can't get out of your head. Like for, I'll just say real quick, the very first scene of the movie is a guy trying to open a wine bottle Mm -hmm. and you see his wife in the kitchen. She's cooking dinner and he's in the other room. He's opening the wine bottle 
And then he has a heart attack and he dies and she's still cooking. And this goes on for like five minutes <laughs> where you just have the image of the man that tried to open the wine dead on the floor and the wife is just she doesn't cooking notice. and she doesn't notice. And like that kind of gives you a sense of like it is funny, but it's also Morbid. dark and sad. And that's kind of Roy Anderson. Like that's the style he works in. And I love this movie. Okay. So that would be my number four coming in. And number three is going to be um, The Boy, which is this kind of, again, another slow burn about a sociopathic child that uh, lives with his dad at this kind of rundown motel, and he slowly becomes more fascinated with death. And it's one of those movies where you kind of know the entire time where it's headed, and it just like the tension builds. You're like, okay, I know this kid wants to kill something. He keeps being put in these situations where he can kill people and it doesn't quite happen, but it keeps building. And uh, it's very dark. The cinematography is beautiful. And it really kind of creeped me out, (laughs) honestly. So that's going to be a weird um, sort of title for people because there is that horror movie called the boy coming out right which like anytime about you google search it that's what yeah pops you up, google but... the boy and like this movie about an evil doll comes up and it's a very generic horror film uh but which you're is... talking about a film starring rain wilson if you, if you right. google it google uh the boy rain wilson yeah rain wilson up. also has uh david morse who i i know a lot of people don't know his name but he's like huge actor like I know him from like Dancer in the Dark. Yeah, but. he was in Dancer in the Dark. Uh I don't know. I can't think of <laughs> he's one of those like, every indie like Yeah, dra- every indie thing. drama. And he kind of plays this like very quiet I think he was on some like ABC like cop procedural like the shield or something. Yeah. One of those. Um but the performance by the child in the film is just like is stunning. Are you excited to see the one about the evil doll? Or you... <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I mean, I'm excited about any any movie having to do with like the evil doll. I feel like both the boys so. are pulling like two different sides of my brain. So you like you have this artsy movie called The Boy about this like it's like a slow burner like art house like killer child. Yeah, that's pulling like the uh, intellectual side of my brain. But I really want to see this trashy movie about an evil killer doll as well. No, and the, and maybe the, I'll do a double feature. No, and the thing about the the artsy boy is like it does have those kind of really long shots yeah that sort of seem to go on forever but it's all about like setting this tone this like really kind of dark tone and once you settle into it like it's very it's a very captivating Mm -hmm. movie so um so yeah that's number three and then my top two are kind of uh big hollywood blockbusters crowd pleasers but uh, number two is Inside Out. I know, like, everyone's seen that movie. I really liked it. I'm not a big Pixar person, but I really liked that movie. I, I mean, I love I love Pixar films, but th- this, to me, like, more than any other Pixar film, it affected me on an emotional level. Like, I was crying like a baby during this <laughs> movie. I cried when movie. Bing Bong had his big moment. Oh, poor... Oh, man. Richard Kind is such a great actor in general. I mean, I've known him since, like, Seinfeld, but, like... Yeah. Uh, big Bing Bong. Man, what a great moment for Richard Kind in 2015. Yeah, and it's just, like, her whole, like, kind of childhood imagination, her 
childhood like imaginary friend is passes on and it's like and, and I do feel like and I know a lot has been written about this but the message of the film I feel like is very important for kids to hear just so like it's good or it's okay to feel sad and like you need to process those emotions of sadness so like I loved it for the film it was and also love its message and again like I, I think what it does is it visualizes the intangible it's like things that you don't normally see it's things you feel right you just feel your emotion and the way it like sets those emotions is like characters like you mm-hmm. have joy you know you have sadness and they're like fighting against each other but that's like the war we kind of have in our and heads the, the progress it sets up is that once you get older those feelings are not isolated you have a, a memory that it's both joy and it's sadness right you don't look back on things like in this idyllic way you kind of see them with like a tinge of sadness and regret and that's part of growing up and you know again as a grown man <laughs> about to turn 30 Watching that movie, I couldn't help but get like emotionally yeah. invested in it. So I, I watched it in the middle of the day in like an isolated theater, like a weirdo. I was like crying <laughs> to myself. I yeah, I watched it alone, cuddled up in my bed, <laughs> crying like a baby. So that was really good. And uh, my number one film for the year is Mad Max. I mean, we can Fury Road. I know. I never probably gonna. I would imagine it's on your list too. But like, that's what the fucking movies are about. Yeah. Like, no, I'm saying like, that's a movie. Like it felt like a spectacle. Like that is, uh, one of two movies that I went back and watched more than once in the theater this year. And the other one was the star Wars movie. The star. And that, you know, I, I kind of went between like, uh, you know, what blockbuster do I want to put on the list? But like Mad Max to me, I've, those visuals are out of this world. And like, mostly the world he sets effects. up, yeah, no, you know, a little bit of CGI, but mostly practical stuff with stuntmen and everything else. And and the fact that, too, like, I believe the director is in his 70s. Yeah, George Miller's in his 70s. And the dude, that felt cutting edge, like something he's a been 20-year-old movies, filmmaker would have made. Yeah, he's been making movies for, like, four decades or so that feel like someone in their 20s are, like, trying to prove to you how awesome they are as a director. Yeah. He's still got that intensity in every film he puts out. I I was just blown away. Yeah. Like, my mouth was just hanging <laughs> open for the entire film. And that's really what we go to the movies for. You know, that's what you want to see on the big screen in the IMAX. And Yeah, I saw it once in 2D and I went back and saw it a second time in 3D, even though he didn't want it to be in 3D when he put it out, but... But you enjoyed the 3D more? I did. I feel like, okay, maybe he didn't want you to see it in 3D, but there's so much just kind of popping out at you in this like absurd way. I yeah. believe like one of the first images is like a steering wheel flying at the screen. Yeah. And that's when like the title card comes up. Nice. Like it's very much like a 3D spectacle, whether or not it wants to be. Yeah. He also said that he didn't he didn't want it in color, like he wanted a black and white version. I th- oh, no. The... It's almost monochromatic as it is. Like, it's very brown and red. Like, it's on, like, a very specific side of the color wheel. It but... is. But I, I like the that color palette. Like, yeah. Well, so what... Let's go... It seems like a well, good segue. Yeah, What's yeah. your top five? Mad Max is my number five for the right. year. <laughs> uh, it's in my top five. Um, if I had to draw it back to what you were just saying, I would say that it's an interesting connection between... Uh, Inside Out and Mad Max. I feel like what those two movies did very well were world building. 
Yes. Um, very. Yeah. They both set this very specific world. And it just drops you into it. Right. Uh, it's already established. It feels complicated and mapped out. It's not something that you feel like they're straining to establish. Um, I loved Mad Max. I saw it twice, like I said. Uh, I'd go see it again. If, if, if there yeah. was some talk about uh, him re-releasing it as a black and white uh, theatrical release, maybe if it gets a little Oscar play. I know it just got nominated. Um, if, it, if it gets some kind of Oscar rewards, maybe he'll get uh I mean, with the, the black and white, it would sort of remind me of, even though I didn't like Sin City <laughs> at all, but like, you know, kind of how that movie was in a very stylized yeah. sort of black and white. Like, I could see I that working. I think this would be a classier. Uh... <laughs> really like a more old school, like black and white. Yeah. I could see that. I mean, honestly, at this point, I trust whatever his vision is because, like, if he's able to create that kind of world and just drop you into it and it's fully imagined, fully realized, then if he wants it to be in black and white, I'll go see it in black and white. Like, <laughs> I'll, I trust I'll, George I'll see Miller. whatever George Miller wants me to see. I sat through both Happy Feet films because he made them and I fucking hated them both. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he made the Babe 2, right? Oh, yeah. Loves. Babe 2, Pig in the City is a fantastic film. Uh, every film in his uh, catalog is very different from one another. Yeah, I was it's hard to, to piece that. together like the story of his catalog where it goes from like one film to the other. But I would say Babe Two is kind of like this uh, nexus where like everything starts to make sense. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of connects the children's vibes and the intensity of Mad Max and kind of makes them make sense together. Yeah, uh, I believe if you watched Pig in the City and Fury Road back to back you would have a better understanding of like where he's coming from as an artist. Uh, I'm, I don't know. So it's, those actually would make sense as a They communicate feature. to each other in ways that you would not expect. Um, speaking of nonstop intensity, uh, my number four movie of the year was Tangerine. That's yes. a very hard film to like not fall in love with. I, I loved it. It was like number six. For, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it was like great. In my top. Yeah, like, that's the nature so, of these top five lists. You kind of ignore uh, all these films you loved. So hard. I Yeah, Tangerine, great. So, just the same way, like, uh, George Miller, it's in, it's impressive how much he accomplished um, by constructing these action sequences by hand. Tangerine's filmed in, entirely on iPhone 5Ss. Right. Uh, I don't even know what that means. I have a flip phone. But, well, uh, <laughs> which is crazy, because that's the exact phone that so, I So, yeah, have. the phone you use to dial, like, your mom... Uh, <laughs> Is made he made film. a feature film on it that's on all these top 20 lists, and it's an incredible feat. Uh, I think the reason I connected with it personally, um, it would be like the most likely film I would want to introduce to John Waters. Like, I would want to watch this film with him. I feel like John oh, Waters would, would really enjoy appreciate it. it. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it's a, another generation of people who grew up watching his, like, uh, sort of um, provocative art, art trash. <laughs> yeah. Know? No, it, it had that art trashiness, but it also like had a lot of screwball comedy, yeah. which is really appealing to me. Especially, you know, like that the scene where they're in the the diner, donut time, donut time. Sorry, not a diner. They're in a donut shop, <laughs> but you know, they got the uh, the poor owner yelling at them, and you got all these different people in there, just. So that scene is very traditionalist. Like it feels like a Greek or a Shakespearean comedy, where like all these uh, yeah, it's characters really, come together. The rest of the film isn't really like that. It's more like these kind of 
I don't know, vignettes? Like, they're sort of just getting into different... It's a day in the life of two prostitutes. Uh, one just got out of jail, and she found out that her pimp, is who was also her fiancé, um, was cheating on her while she was locked up. Uh, she goes on sort of a whirlwind tour of Los Angeles to track this guy down mm-hmm. and to, like, give him the what for. And uh, she drags by the hair the uh, woman that he was cheating on her with um, to, like, sort of bring it all into, like, one big confrontation. So messed up, too. But like, like you said, there's... lady just getting dragged around the entire Oh, uh, yeah, town. you feel bad for her. I know. But she's also awful. She is. But then she becomes endearing after a minute. And I love how they bond, like, her... It's kind of like Stockholm oh, Syndrome, yeah. like... That scene where they're in the bathroom and they're like smoking meth and applying makeup on each other, it's very tender. And I feel like that's something that's missing from a lot of John Waters movies, even though he's like my favorite director. He doesn't have that like sincere heart that yeah. Tangerine has. It's all a little bit cynical. It's it's campy on purpose and sort of has this like emotional remove where Tangerine has those tender moments like in the bathroom. There's another moment in the uh, laundromat where the uh, two leads sort of have this like, they're basically, they're they're the only family that each other have. Are you talking about the like the last scene? The last scene, yes. Oh, I love I love that. Yeah. Where it's and it's such a like simple gesture. She just reaches over and like grabs her hand and they look at each other and like that's all you need. You start to realize like that's the entire like support system that each other has. It's just these two people looking Yeah, out they're for just another. looking out for each other. It, yeah, it was it was really good. Okay. And, uh, my and number... it gives hope to all filmmakers out there because all you need oh, is yeah. like a cell phone now. Like you can make it happen. And there were other movies like that this year, like uh, um, Creep uh, and um, The Overnight. Yeah. Both made by the same guy. I can't remember his name. Patrick something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they were both um, just like a couple people on a camera and very uh, intense. And just watches. a really tight script, and that's all you need. So what was your number three? Uh, Ex Machina. Um, speaking yeah. of just like a small cast, uh, it's basically just three people in this removed um, location. Uh, one is a robot. <laughs> the other two are uh, scientists. Uh, they're trying to um, discern whether or not the um, robot has a consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a very um, specific context about what makes someone a person, uh, how men interact with women. Um, I'd say sort of moving away from what we're saying about Mad Max having this intense uh, effect with its practical mm-hmm. applications, it uses CGI in a very tasteful way that I don't feel like is used very often where it creates this unnerving effect with the computer imagery mm-hmm. where it's used when it's needed. It's not over the top. Like most... Um, like go to your average uh, Avengers Marvel s- superhero movie. Oh yeah, it's like you're just watching a video game, basically. Right. Ex Machina pulls away from that, but still uses CGI to like create its uh, sci-fi aspects. But it, but in a weird way, it uses CGI to create a more like human element. Like it, even though she is like a a robot and AI, she feels like a a woman. Mm-hmm. So, like, the CGI is, like, very effective in that way where it doesn't take you out of it. It actually, like, pulls you in and you feel more connected to her as a character, which I do feel like is unusual with CGI. And the CGI is, like, a ba- like as good as it is, it's, like, a back uh, 
it's basically just there to support three very uh, intense performances from actors. Oh yeah, the especially I mean um, the villain I guess you uh, could Oscar call Isaac. Him. Oscar Isaac. I loved his like his whole like bro. He, the way he creates <laughs> this like bromance sort of with the guy or like yeah. Buddy, buddy. So buddy. him and Donald Gleason both popped up in the Star Wars movie later that year too. Which yeah, is very interesting because they're like two completely different approaches to sci-fi. Yeah, I. You know, what I really loved about Ex Machina was like it kind of took these elements that we've seen before, sort of, uh, like you said, with what makes uh, a robot versus a human, like relationships between men and women, but it like. I don't know, it just kind of condensed it down and felt very, like, like a very solid kind of reimagining of things that we've sort of seen before. And visually, I thought it was awesome. Oh, yeah. Like, the score It's and very the crisp. Like, it's got, like, a, um... Just the architecture of the uh, remote location where they're like living out their little three-person uh, drama. Yeah, uh, it's got these really crisp architectural um, aspects to it. It creates a very interesting um, sort of dichotomy between the interior spaces, where it has these intense red uh, colors to it, and then it immediately cuts to outside, where it's these bright green jungles, and your eyes just kind of burn watching it. Um, I didn't get the same. Uh, effect when I was watching it at home that I did in the theater. Uh, I probably should have turned off all the lights <laughs> to get wh- where I was. But um, if you had, if you watch it in a dark room, uh, it's incredible just how vivid that transition is from like the interior to the exterior spaces. And I guess you could also kind of read that as us as a viewer, we're kind of we're the AI in the sense of like she's been cooped up in the darkness for her whole existence. And then she's just trying to get outside into the real world. And with that comes this like burning sensation of like, you're finally out in nature. You're not in stuck in some like dark room. And I, I do think that was like intentional. Probably. Oh yeah. That whole push and pull from what's artificial, what's natural is entirely intended. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's done with very few moving parts. Like, it just kind of gets its point across. Yeah, it was a very, very efficient movie. I would say, like, it did er- everything uh, without having any, like, extra fat, so to speak. Like, And you could kind of say the same about my number two movie of the year, which is what we do in The Shadows. It's a, uh, mm, what do you call that? Like a mockumentary about these vampires who live in this <laughs> uh, flat together in New Zealand. Yeah, uh, It's from the creators of What We Do in the Shadows, I'm sorry, that's the name of the film. Uh, Flight of the Concords. <laughs> right. uh, it's got Taika Waititi, whose name I'm probably butchering, who uh, created uh, Flight of the Concords. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jermaine Clement, who is one of the stars of the show. Hilarious. And also the guy who played Jim- uh, Murray, who I can't remember the actual actor's name. Um, they basically play vampires, werewolves, and witches in this uh, fictional New Zealand um, where th- those things are real. Uh, mm-hmm. And they just kind of negotiate... Um, what it means to be living in a modern world and be this like horrific kind of ghoul, uh, 
basically any kind of modern concerns you would have about splitting the rent or who's going to clean the dishes this week or uh, (laughs) being left alone to do your dark bidding on the internet. (laughs) So it's like these absurd... uh, Are these kind of otherworldly characters that are having to do mundane things like pay the light bill? Right. (laughs) And it's very efficient. Like every joke lands... If you watch it multiple times, these sort of uh, one-liners become part of your daily dialogue. Uh, it's I haven't seen a lot of movies that I think were great comedies in 2015. That's I, ac- well, that's actually what I was going to bring up was like comedies were not really I on would our say, list this year. I would say Spy was fantastic. Sp- spy? What? Uh, it's I the Melissa McCarthy um, super spy, like kind of James Bond spoof. Uh, I, did, I did not see Probably that. the best like spoof movie I've seen since MacGruber. Mm-hmm. You know, I love MacGruber. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There are elements of comedies and other films I really Ta- like. I mean, Tangerine, Tangerine had some was funny. Elements, sure. Ex Machina was funny in a very dark kind of way. You could yeah. maybe say the same about Mad Max. Um, but I wouldn't call either of those, those films are not a comedies. comedy. Right. And uh, people have struggled with that anyway. Like, I believe The Martian um, won Best Comedy at the Golden Globes, which is... That's bizarre. I wouldn't... I mean, it was kind of a feel-good movie, but it wasn't a comedy. Like, I did laugh, but comedy is like a very specific sort of thing for me. What we do in the shadows, excellent comedy from the year. Best comedy of the year, I could say that by far. Maybe the best comedy in years, uh, because I love it so much. Um, I don't really have all that written out, but <laughs> uh, I'm already ready to go back to watch it just to like grab more sort of one-liners for it. I can feel like it will get this kind of Mighty Python kind of uh, cult following where people will start memorizing uh, scenes from the film. It, yeah. it feels like that kind of movie. Uh, it's up there with like the best mockumentaries of like Christopher Guest, uh, like a Spinal Tap kind of thing. Spinal or like Tap, a... Best in Show, uh, somewhere along those lines. Awesome. Uh, my, my favorite movie of the year, comedy or otherwise, was The Duke of Burgundy, which I think Oof. is funnier than you would expect it to be. Uh, it's it's these two women um, who are in a BDSM relationship, uh, and it's not a commercial sort of film in the way you would expect that setup to be. Um, no, it's most, not Fifty Shades of Grey here. No. It's like much, much more artfully done, much more right. cerebral. It's an art piece uh, about... Uh, this one relationship, uh, these two women are negotiating uh, what where bedroom play would spill over into their normal romantic life. Um, one is very demanding of the other, where she expects her to tell her to do things uh, that the other one isn't always game for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feels like it goes in this repetitive cycle where... Um, those two aspects of their relationship need to be negotiated how is one going to affect the other? Um, Right. It's probably the snootiest uh, film I've put on my list. Um, Not everyone's going to get into this. Well, and and normally I find, like, you you seem to like these, like, you know, the, like, blockbuster kind of things, but, like, yeah, I was sort of surprised that it was your number one pleasantly surprised because it was, like, an art house film. Right. It's not typically do straight from that. It's but, a rewarding film, though. Oh, it is. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed it. The more you watch it, the more purposeful it feels. At first, you get, the first time you view the film, the repetition gets kind of frustrating. You're like, oh, why am I watching the same scene play out? 
uh, two or three times, but it means more each time. It, it but the thing, the whole, the repetition is kind of the point. It's like she has these note cards of like what you're supposed to say in this situation, and like it's going through a routine. Like every relationship is going through a routine. It's just theirs is like a little more fucked it's up, a little kinkier, <laughs> a little kinkier. But I think the dynamic is still very real. Like one person's in control. And the other one, like, wants a different kind of relationship. And, uh, Peter Strickland is a British director. This is kind of his, uh, his game. His game that he always plays. He has mm-hmm. these like very precious images where each scene kind of feels long and drawn out, and uh, very intense cinematography. And he makes it work in a way that a lot of films like this can be frustrating for me. Like, I feel like uh, right. a lot of films like this are more work than they're worth. Sometimes uh, he makes it fun to watch um even though i wouldn't recommend this film to most people watching it i have a lot of fun uh it is funnier than it should be given how like ridiculous the setup is yeah it's a nice mixture of like at points i felt sad watching it Mm -hmm. for just their crumbling like relationship but also like there are points that are just funny and you know it is an erotic film too so there's like this kind of sexual element there's like a lot of different things going on that i think a less talented director would not be able to juggle all these different elements together and on the avant-garde end there's just imagery that most people wouldn't be able to make work like there's a scene where the camera sort of zooms in on uh, one of their vaginas right sort of enters uh the darkness under her legs yeah this dream world with these butterflies flying everywhere and yeah, a, a beautiful scene that, like, you know, I don't know, it, it comes kind of late in the movie, but it kind of ties in some of the themes. Because I, I found myself wondering, I was like, where, where are, like, the the butterflies and everything going to come into play like she's... I think you can tie that into the themes of the film uh, in that everyone feels very pinned down in their roles. Just the way that the butterfly wings are like preciously pinned to the boards. Oh, is that that's a symbolism? I think there's some, something, some kind of play there. I was the thinking about like change and like a me- metamorphosis that's going also on, play, yeah. and but also like you know at the end of the film, it's like a cycle. Mm-hmm. Like you think it's over, but then it's just going to repeat itself. Um, and he's but the thing you- is, those metaphors work on like different levels which is why it's so good and he's put you through that before with barbarian sound studio right. it's kind of a frustrating slow burner but like by the time you get through it it becomes more rewarding and it's more fun to watch it the second time yeah and you're like okay that was worth it like, yeah definitely no it, it's a great movie i would put him up there with like jonathan glazer is like one of those people who's only made three or four films but each one is just so awesome they just like are excited to watch the next one even though you may not be on board th- throughout the film, you, it, it may take time to win you over. Yeah, but it's like one of those directors, I guess, that you feel like you can trust. Like, even if the subject matter might not appeal to you right off the bat, like, it's in good hands. So, uh, check out every film Peter Strickland's ever done, including yes. the Bjork concert movie, uh, Biophilia, which is a fun watch. Um, I, I feel like we have to condense our movies down to one recommendation. Uh, we <laughs> both recommended hard. Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, if you haven't seen it already, there's really no excuse. What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> Please go out and watch that as soon as you can. Um, 
And I'm looking forward to see what 2016 has to offer. Definitely. Lots of good stuff coming out. 2016 is going to be a good year for film. So, Bon Voyage 2015. Good riddance. Good riddance. Good riddance. And my apologies to Patrick Bryce, whose name I couldn't remember earlier. Uh, He directed both Creep and The Overnight in 2015. Both very impressive films for a first-time director. I look forward to seeing what he has to do in the future once he has a bigger budget and more room to play with. Welcome back. Uh, We're about to get into our movie of the minute section. Uh, We do a thing on the website called Movie of the Month where we make each other watch something we've never seen before. Uh, I just made James watch the movie Felt from 2015. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) It's not something you want to undertake lightly. It's a uh, kind of disjointed art therapy film about a woman who has experienced a sexual trauma and she copes with it in very unconventional ways. Uh, it starts with, I want to say, fart jokes and um, fantasies about killing men that aren't too serious, and uh, outsider art um, that's not necessarily disciplined, but very uh, goofy. And once she gets into um, actually trying to cure herself of uh, what has happened to her in the past, she goes more into psychological horror territory. Uh, Felt starts off as a sort of low-key indie comedy, and by the end of it, it is full-blown psychological horror, um, even with a very gory last five minutes that, (laughs) if you're not prepared for, can catch you very much off guard. Um, The themes of uh, rape culture, patriarchy, um, just taking charge of one's own sexual identity are very strong... (laughs) Probably going to have a lot of people not interested in where it goes, but mm-hmm. if you can get on its wavelength, it's a very rewarding film and a very strange one. Uh, so I guess I'm going to have to ask James off the uh, cuff what he thought of the film. I So I enjoyed it a lot the first time I watched it. Uh, I think I was just taken back by the how bizarre costumes were and just just how weird the movie felt to me. Like, I love art house films and stuff so it really appealed to me and in, in that way and as she kind of you know goes down into the psychological horror thing as you say uh, I really liked all that too but kind of upon second viewing I think I have a more critical <laughs> mind uh, or you know opinion of the film basically I really like it I feel like the problem for me was the deck was a little too stacked against the men uh, in yeah. the movie in the sense that every single male character we encounter in the film is just garbage. Yeah, they're all they real pieces of shit. Are real <laughs> bad people, and you know, by the end, are, are we gonna spoil this? Uh, we can get into that a little later. Okay, uh, I don't want to spoil it right I away. I will go back a second. And you were just talking about the costumes. Um, her outsider art therapy she does for herself 
is that she goes into the woods and wears these quote-unquote superhero costumes that she makes, where she basically transforms herself into this powerful muscle man right. that wields a sword and just kind of hangs out in the wood naked. Uh, she wears a lifelike penis, uh, and just fucking like... And, and it should also be said that the actress actually does... This is her art. Yeah, Amy on the Everson. Side. Amy Everson, like, the director, like, found her... You know, through her art and basically made the movie t- based around. She even plays a character called Amy in the film. So I believe right. most people are named after themselves. Yeah, and and what, what I'll say um, to kind of go back, just a one more critical thing I'll have to say about it, because I do think it was really good. I don't want to like try to act like it was the worst thing because it's gotten some really bad reviews that I think. Oh are yeah, like, people hate this movie. Yeah, and I think that's like kind of unjustified uh, i think it's like a personal story about this one character and her world that she creates i thought it was great i think it's like a larger com- commentary on like rape culture i do feel like it kind of missed the mark because it's so uh like i said it's so stacked against the men there's no real nuance the kind of feeling you get from the film is like men are awful right and even when they're trying to comfort oh you know there's that scene even when a man's trying to comfort a woman uh you know he's still like wanting sex it's still about that like rape mindset and i think that like as a man i felt indicted like <laughs> just watching the film i felt like but if this you think is an indictment it, on me okay if you think about it though it's like through her point of view right so right. before the film starts She's already been through some traumatic event, which I believe is a rape. You don't, you, yeah. don't, you don't have to live through it while you're watching the movie, but that uh, cloud overhangs everything that happens. Right. Um, basically, the movie's putting you in her shoes. Kind of like in the last scene, she dresses her uh, lover up in her outfit so that he is basically right. in her position. Right, and she's taking on the role of, of the man. Right. So... The movie's putting you in that same point of view where you have experienced a trauma. Every man that enters your life is a threat to you. Right. And I I think that's on purpose. Like it's not it's not necessarily that every man in the world is a piece of shit, but from her perspective, if you're going to live in her shoes for a minute, every every male that's coming into the picture is a threat. And if you're going to follow the movie's logic, by the time she starts to soften on that position and she lets a masculine influence enter her life, the man betrays her through infidelity and then she snaps. Right. She's finally let someone into her interior space. She shows him her bedroom where she keeps her art. She, so- she shows him the woods where she like has her alone time where she dresses up like her yeah. hyper-masculine superhero character. And then... He's basically betrayed that trust, and that's when she snaps. But didn't you feel like that was a little, little obvious? As soon as that her boyfriend character enters mm-hmm. the picture, at least I knew I was like, okay, he's gonna be a piece of crap like everyone <laughs> else in the movie, and she's let him in. And then again, with the ending, I've seen that before. That act that happens at the end of the right. film. I've seen in count in a, quite a few other movies, so in that way, it just felt like a, a little, a little obvious, and like I don't know if it like really 
got deep into like this rape culture commentary that I think it wanted to. I don't know if it necessarily needs to address that as like a political stance. I don't think it's necessarily a political movie. Like, uh, okay, you just saw um, what's the movie about the photographer killer? Uh, Peeping Tom for the Peeping first time. Peeping Tom, yeah, great. So, movie. Okay, so we just both saw that for the first time in the last year. Yeah, I, are these two films all that different? Um, I I just felt like Peeping Tom was more original for me. Well, it, it came out forty, fifty years ago. But even then, like <laughs> it felt fresher to me than than this movie did. Honestly, like besides all the weirdness, like uh-huh. if you get past the crazy, the costumes and all the just kind of weird art stuff when you get down to just the story level it it i think it's been done like <sighs> countless times and it, i guess the genre aspect doesn't bother me as much because for this movie it's a very slow film where every scene is almost curated like an art gallery like you're looking at these weird um, intense imagery and really not that much is happening narratively in the film like the story doesn't go by very quickly there's not that many different story beats yeah uh, basically you I'm, know who she is you know what she's going through and she takes you through this world of just weird images oh and that's one thing that i really liked about it actually was the kind of fractured nature of just like the way the movie does these like kind of jump cuts and like you're in a scene and then you're in another scene very quickly uh which I think it kind of shows like her mindset, right. basically like she's fractured, she's broken, and that's the way the narrative felt to me. Like that—that's something I actually, I really enjoyed about the film. But uh, I, again, I did like it. It was not a it, to me. It wasn't like a great film. It's not something that I would put on like you know my top movies of the year right. or something. But I definitely appreciated it. <laughs> I'll say, like, the first time I watched it, I thought it was a very intense movie, and I got the, like, dramatic aspects of it, and when it was over, I was like, fuck, that was so rough. Yeah. The second time I watched it, I found it very funny. Like, she makes all these ridiculous, like, fart jokes. Every time someone tries to treat her like a sexual object, she sort of reverts back to this childhood state where she, like, makes fun of them for, like, treating her that way. Right. I believe she says in the movie that sexiness is overrated. Uh, I I mean... I, uh, to talk about a specific scene, I loved the part where she goes to the photography thing, and she, her, and the the other girl that yeah, basically it's like there. a cam girl set up where uh, this I want to say like a Craigslist ad maybe the, this like hipster asshole uh, yeah. sets up this photo shoot where she's supposed to be sexing on a bed with some other model, but she shows up in her like costume that has exaggerated you know, the, tits. Yeah, the female anatomy to like a ridiculous kind of right. And she knows exactly what she's doing. She says it out loud. Like, this is the female form. This is what you wanted to see. But she makes it grotesque. And, and then she farts. And, and, <laughs> no, that it's very funny. It's kind of turning the, like, expectations of women to, like, be sexy. And right. not, you know, oh, don't fart. Like, that's not womanly <laughs> to do that or whatever. No, that was... Uh, well, I, I want to ask you, because the first time I watched it, I was by myself. And I felt it was a very intense, like, drama... The second time I watched it, I was with my little brother, and it was an uncomfortable experience, but it was a very funny experience. Like, uh, I felt like the movie was prompting you to laugh. Like, I don't think it's necessarily like this grim. Uh, no, no, I, 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 I mean, I watched it by myself both times, and 
No, there. It's definitely funny. Like there are at parts of it that are genuinely funny. I, I do think the funniness kind of like weans off towards you know the latter half of the movie, and it does become more the like psychological horror. Which again, to me, like I feel like we've been there before. I almost I like the beginning more in a way because it had more of that like humor. Yeah, interwoven into it. Do but, you think horror is a genre you kind of excuse conventions in sometimes, though? Because I don't think this is necessarily like a straightforward horror film. No. But once it once it gets there, it's like... I don't know if I've necessarily seen a horror movie that does what this movie does. Like, it's... Uh, kind of the way, like, Beyond the Black Rainbow is, like, this, like, weird psychedelic experience um have you seen that one yes okay i have you know that's like a slow burn weird psychedelic experience it's very much like a 70s movie but it like removes you from that genre and like kind of picks it apart um i feel like this does almost a similar thing like it brings everything down to this slow crawl even though it's only like 80 minutes long where you feel like each each image and each scene is isolated and you experience it like an art piece but then the last minute, it kind of brings everything together, so you recognize it as a genre piece. It's like, oh, this is a horror movie. I get what this is going for. I get what the resolution's supposed to be. Yeah, and the re- and the resolution did feel like kind of certain icing on the cake, like that. I saw it coming, but it needed to happen right. for the story to like resolve itself. So I mean, and that's I get I get everything that you're saying. I. I guess it's effective as a, like, again, as, like, this personal kind of story as, like, and it works as, like, the horror and the comedy all sort of works. But if you're looking at it as, like, what I thought it was supposed to be, like, a big picture kind of statement, mm-hmm. like, it, it's supposed to be, like, kind of an important film about rape culture because we don't talk about that I don't, enough. I don't know if it approaches that. Like, I feel like it's evoking that conversation, and it's talking about rape culture and patriarchy, and they invoke, evoke it directly on purpose. Like, very early in the film, they're saying, like, oh, why don't we kill men? I want to stab men in the penis with a fucking needle. Yeah, yeah. But they're just blowing off steam. Like, but do I don't you, think you're supposed to identify with her actions once she snaps mentally. Do you, But do you feel like the, the filmmaker kind of did that on purpose? Like, do you think it was purposeful in the sense that, like... Maybe we're supposed to feel like this is a little bit unfair, like that she, you know, again, it like murders, <laughs> murders this guy. Like that's for infidelity. That's right. a little bit ridiculous. Like I almost found myself like, yeah, this guy's a cheater, but does he deserve if this? It, like, are uh, do you think we're supposed to be feeling if that she we was, like conflicted? If she was a serial killer, and that um, every like fifteen minutes she trusted some guy and he betrayed her and she killed him and then over and over again she goes through that cycle which is basically what happens in peeping tom right he like lets these women in and then he kills them right uh on repeat uh maybe that would have been a little over the top i feel like because you follow her mental psyche and you start with like how uh burnt out she is and like just like trying to piece herself back together and just like give up this vulnerability that's so hard for her mm-hmm. uh, that when she does finally let this guy in and it does take a long time for him to get there yeah to be betrayed is like this big fucking deal so when she like snaps back it's like it's a 
weird push and pull where you're like, you sort of see where she's going, but like if that happened in real life, like, well, yeah, she'd be a monster. No, but in, and you're right. In the context of the movie, like, that's the only thing that could happen. Like, you know, that's where her mind was already at, sort of. And I don't know. I I really liked the the scene too of her on the okay. Cupid date with a guy where he's <laughs> oh, talking, it's horrible. Yeah, it's just f- f- terrible. And he's talking about how like roofies aren't a real thing, and like um, girls lie about getting raped so they don't feel bad about having sex. Yeah, but what 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 I really liked about that scene, and again, like maybe something that internally like it affected me was because you know he's, he says like, oh, you just don't have a sense of humor. Like I'm just joking around. Like you know. Even if it's a distasteful joke, like, it's still out of humor. Like, why don't you get it? And she's just like, that's not funny. She's saying, I get it. The reason it's it. not funny is because I do have a sense of humor. Yeah, I do have a sense of humor and, you know, you're an asshole. Right. Basically, and I, that really struck me because I see that a lot in the culture nowadays where, like, male whether it be comedians or whoever. He's will basically like, like a drunk Daniel Tosh. That yeah, side. Daniel Tosh or a Dane Cook or any comedian or whoever are just male that kind of makes light of, you know, rape and roofies or, you know, Bill Cosby. They might crack a joke like that is very prevalent in the culture. And I like that the movie called those people out. Like, I will say that something I enjoy that the film does on that front is that a lot of films that I have a hard time watching will be these like rape revenge stories where you see the act happen. Like a, I Spit on Your Grave Right. Type. You have to live... Okay, and I Spit on Grave is a great example because you have to live through that trauma four fucking times before you get to like the, the, uh, pay the payoff. Off. Yeah. This one starts with the aftermath, so there's like this emotional uh, trauma that, that you have to go through. You don't have to watch the actual act that fucked her up. Yeah. You just watch her like process it and then act back once it no, starts to happen again. No, and I, I did think about that too, because like those exploitation films, like I Spin on Your Grave, they like, it's so cheap. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, we're going to show you this vile, disgusting act, so you want to see these people get their comeuppance. And like, what I did appreciate about Felt was like, like you said, it doesn't show you that. It doesn't give you that. You just kind of get this lingering sense like, yeah, we never know for sure what happens to her, but you can, you infer it. You can infer what it is, but I like that they didn't give in to like that cheap. They could have done like a flashback to, but they never actually go back to. It's a very what disjointed happened. movie. Like I've heard a lot of criticism saying it's a little too on the nose. Uh, it like puts a little like it ties a nice little ribbon at the end where like you feel like everything's resolved. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a little bit of that from you right now. Yeah, that it's got a political statement to it. I felt I like it had a political statement. I don't really but... don't feel like it does. <laughs> I, but see, the thing is, it's hard. You can't really even argue about that because I don't. We don't know what the filmmakers' right, intention right. was. Yeah. it's just watching it. I, I got a political message out of it. But I, that's why it's the message that men are evil. Well, basically, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. But As it's a, made by like a dude. Like the director is a man. Well, I. That's very. That's interesting. I. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like what they're what they're doing is you're putting your, you in her shoes, to the point where you realize like how 
disjointed and hard to piece together reality your life is after something that awful happens to you. Yeah. And after that, all bets are off. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Well, anyway, are you glad that you watched it, at least? I mean, I'm... No, I'm very glad I watched it. And I did like it. I, um... Yeah, I... Wouldn't put it in my top 20. But I liked <laughs> it. I did like it. And I really enjoyed the the like her art itself oh yeah like her costumes and everything like the and kind of androgynous just the like blank what about fetal hitler she has like a little oh, fetal hitler was great yeah dude, she has this little like uh what is it yarn uh woven like hitler that she quote-unquote went back in time and aborted yeah and aborted and yeah. the guy's like oh that's funny and she's like it's not funny i saved all these Jews. Million, yeah, I say millions of... Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, I, I loved all... And I think my favorite would be, you know, her muscle man. Oh, at yeah. At the very end when she fully embodies the, like, male role and she's, like, super Okay, buff, what I like about looking. the muscle man when she wears the muscles and goes on her porch and just kind of stretches out and, like, uh, raises her arms and shows off her, like, buff triceps or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that is shrouded in darkness. Like, usually when she goes in the woods, she shows off her dick, and she's waving the sword around. Um, she's well lit. Uh, yeah. The muscle man either happens at dawn or dusk, so you can't really see her that well. It's, like, entirely for her. Like, mm-hmm. it's not really on display. And that's what I like about her art in the film, is it's all these private spaces. Like, the woods are very, like, isolated. She's out there alone. Yeah. Uh, her bedroom is very insular. You can tell it was the kind of space that someone had been recording, like making art in, in a, for a very long time, maybe decades on end. Uh, it kind of looks like madness. Like you can tell she's sort of working these issues out, uh, and you kind of feel weird as an audience member looking in on something that's so private. And that's something I do not get the feeling from from a lot of films. It just feels almost naughty, just even looking in at what she's making. Well, and also it's like when. She brings her boyfriend into the room. Uh, you know how like important that is to her because she's actually letting someone in to that space, and you could tell he's like kind of doesn't really know what to think. And uh, anyway, like I don't know. That was to me to show that like their relationship had finally reached a level where she could trust him to actually let someone into that personal space. And she has that uh, same experience later. It's echoed when she brings him to the tree. Right. And it's this burnt out, hollowed out redwood. Which, by the way, I loved that whole kind of monologue she gave about how, like, that is her, basically. Like, she's a hollowed out tree at this point and how she needs to burn everything <laughs> down in order to, you know, restart her life. Well, there's three monologues in the whole film. There's the one at the beginning where she says how she's living, which is like as a ghost after this trauma. And she feels like she doesn't have control over her life. She's sort of haunting her past. The second monologue is when she's in the bedroom with him and showing her, showing him her art. And she's saying that women aren't listened to and they aren't respected. And the third one comes at the end when she shows him the, the tree mm-hmm. that's hollowed out from the fire. And she's like, my heart is dead. Uh, I don't know if there's a specific progression of those monologues. It seems like they're, is there a very is. specific progression, yeah. But what specifically that progression is and what it means, I feel like it's up for debate, and that's what makes this sort of a rewarding film to go back to uh, 
two or three times. I feel like I had a different experience the two times I watched it. I'm already looking forward to going to watch it again. No, and also, like like I said, like I've seen it twice now. The first time, I was just kind of taking in the visuals, uh, which were really impressive. And then the second time, I started to think more deeply about the like kind of political, the bigger picture, like what is this film really trying to say? But now, you know, after this conversation... Um, I don't know. I'm kind of doubting that there is an overall political thing. Like maybe it is really just like her personal story of trauma. We don't need to like extrapolate about the bigger like political statement. Like maybe that's not the point. I'd say for you, just like knowing you, I would want you to go back and watch it a third time just as a psychological horror film and like view it as like a horror genre film. Cause Mm -hmm. it's it's a weird film to try to pinpoint as a genre. But I feel like you would most enjoy it as like a avant-garde horror film. Um, for everyone else, if you want to go check out this movie, it is on Netflix. It's very easy to access right now. It did not get a lot of love when it came out in 2015. No, and that, that's unfortunate. And the, and the fact is, like, because it's had these like wide range of reviews, mm-hmm. usually to me that means like it's a film worth something because right. it's causing people to like debate. And have these conversations, you know, and very few films can actually have that wide range of I, opinion. I don't think there are many movies you could compare it to, um, just for like a, a base point for jumping off. If if I did have to compare it to something, I would say Teeth from the early 2000s, which was about is a horror film about a, a woman who had um, a set of teeth in her vagina. Right. Uh, <laughs> That one is a little more over the top and ridiculous in like a cartoonish kind of way, and it is a little more ridiculous. I feel like if you view this one in the same light, you'll get a lot more out of it. What I was thinking while I was watching it was uh, the first thing that kind of came to mind as a comparison was like basically like a Lars von Trier. I don't think film. it has that kind of emotional weight to it. I it doesn't have emotional weight. It, it does, has... but okay. Lars von Trier is a um, okay. Maybe I can see what you're saying. I just don't like him. <laughs> no, I, I know he's not like one of your favorites, but it definitely seemed in that same vein. Like it's in the art world, but it's like has an emotional. It's a, it's a provocation the same way his movies are. Like it's definitely. it's provoking you to feel extreme emotions. Um, no, that it's sort of. Did you see Nymphomaniac? Yeah. Last in the same way, it's like a woman that's been through trauma and just kind of the escalation of that like i don't know there were other films that kind of gave me a similar feeling to that but i do feel like it is unique it stands on its own it's well if you're in that venn diagram where you enjoy teeth and you enjoy nymphomaniac you should check out felt (laughs) as soon as you can there's probably very few of you out there right but But this movie is for you uh we'll come back with another movie the minute next podcast i believe we're talking about Boxing Helena. Oh yeah, there's a there's another one that's gonna have a lot of a lot of discussion. I haven't sure. seen it yet. James has watched make me watch it. Um, as for now, uh, I'd ask you to go to swampflex.com. We talk about movies on a daily basis. There's about five of us right now, so there's a pretty wide range of um, what people enjoy and what they don't. So um, just check us out. Do you have anything to plug at the moment? No, I'm uh, about to start a band camp and release some music, but that'll be in the future, so don't worry about it now. Stay tuned to find out what James's band camp will be. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 2 of the Swampflex podcast will soon be coming towards you at any time. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> all right, see y'all later. See ya.